Welcome to Blue Collar Love, the Starflyer 59 retrospective. My name is Samuel. And I'm Aaron. And Aaron, I think we have someone really cool with us today. Yes, guys, today with us we have the uncomparable songwriter, producer, guitarist, pastor, preacher, comedian, humorist, all-around renaissance guy, Terry (laughs) Scott Taylor. (laughs) Well, that's a great intro. I like that. (laughs) Well, we like that you're here with us today. (laughs) Yes. Terry, thank you so much. So, um... Some people may be wondering, for maybe those that aren't familiar with you, um, what exactly – let me get my questions up here. For the uninitiated, yeah. tell us um, who you are, what you do, um, what do you have to do with music or Starflyer 59 or any of that. Well, uh, obviously you're talking to me because I'm a musician, so I've been doing it for mm, a few decades now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's been <laughs> – been quite a quite a long haul but enjoyable and challenging and ups and downs all the way um i started uh, i started songwriting uh at least mentally started songwriting when i was a kid i i think from the earliest uh, my earliest years i was making up little songs in my head singing them to myself i didn't have the nerve to sing them to my uh folks or to my friends or anything so I was already sort of uh, very early on writing songs, and I, I love the craft of songwriting. And, of course, then through the, uh, the late 50s and early 60s, when all of the, um, when the British invasion came in, before that it was the teen heartthrob guys or like Elvis or Ricky Nelson, people like that. And then, and then when uh, the, um, the British invasion took place, and then you had Motown. It was just an amazing time of, of mute for music, and very eclectic on the radio and so forth. And uh, that really kicked my desire uh, into gear as far as wanting to write songs. My my folks got me a little uh, uh, two track tape recorder. That was big because I could uh, double my vocals. You know, that was huge. And uh, I got that thing in high school and, and uh, fell in love with recording at that point in time. And then from there, I was involved in local bands. Uh, there was a local band in the Bay Area called the Cardboard Scheme that was kind of popular. And uh, same kind, you know, hung around with the same band, bands like uh, Larry Norman's People and those sorts of people. And so, um, uh, and everybody back then had a guitar. Everybody had a garage. Everybody was in a band. And uh, that that kind of launched my desire to to, you know, I, I don't know at this that point if I thought I would be able to make a living out of it. And then eventually um, uh, I was in various local bands and then eventually I I uh, I became a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. So my 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 there was a shift in 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 my songwriting a bit. And I started introducing, I wanted to say something about my faith. So I wrote a few songs and we put those into our set. And then at one point, somebody handed me the Love Song record. I don't know if you guys know who Love Song is, but uh, Love Song was um, uh, a group that sort of incorporated all the stuff that I loved. Beach Boys, Beatles, um, all of it. And I thought, wow, 
these guys are really doing it and they're faith based. So I can do it, too. And that was sort sort of the catalyst for forming uh, what eventually became Daniel Amos. And then from there, there were offshoots of Daniel Amos, which are the Swirling Eddies and uh, Lost Dogs. Okay, you mentioned that the Beach Boys and the um, Beatles were some of your musical influence and Larry Norman. Are there any other artists or bands that influenced you? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I mean, band, you know, I mean, we're talking about the whole spectrum of influences. Uh, you know, that then you go into, you know, everybody from the Stones to Bowie. Um, I mean, I, I could I could I could list, uh, you know, 100 bands that 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 it had, some, you know, every 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 musician, even even people like Bowie or the Beatles, the Beatles were influenced by American rock and roll music and stones by the blue American blues and, and, and things like that. So uh, we're all influenced by someone. What we what we try to do, you know, our influences become sort of subconscious for us as as we do what we do. And hopefully we come up with something that has originality, although you can hear certain influences of what we do. So, uh, you know, I, I could go on and on about various people that have influenced me in my life. And uh, uh, but I, th I think I think my greatest influences were probably out of that era when music was it was sort of the golden age when when uh, when the Beatles, uh, you know, Beach Boys, Pet Sounds, uh, maybe the greatest album ever recorded. Those all those all had impact on my life and on my craft. That is really cool. Now, um, moving forward in time a little bit to uh, the late '90s, early a 2000s. Lot. A lot um, bit, you mean? <laughs> yeah, a lot bit. Um, how did you get involved with uh, Jason Martin? Well, um, I worked quite a bit over in Huntington Beach at the Green Room, the fabulous Green Room, where Gene Eugene uh, was the owner there, engineer, and of course. Gene and I worked on a lot of projects together, um, and um, of course he was um, he was an Adam again, and um, Gene always uh, loved my work, and uh, we had a, a real bond not only as musicians but as 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 friends, and um, he would talk now and then about this guy, Jason Martin and Starflyer. And uh, I'd, I'd heard some things, but I, I wasn't well acquainted uh, with with their music. And uh, heard some more of them. Really loved what I heard. And um, I'm not certain at that point uh, exactly what the uh, where we were going with all of it. I it it seems to me that Gene was talking about possibly he and I co-producing uh, a record for. Uh, Starflyer. I, I understood that Jason um, loved Daniel Amos and loved the Alarma record uh, particularly, and um, that he was kind of looking to do something uh, that had some influences uh, from from that particular record. <clears throat> and um, and I don't, or it could have been that Gene was scheduled to uh, produce the record. And he was just telling me about it. I don't remember really exactly what it was, but uh, of course we had the tragedy of Gene's death, and um, that uh, changed everything. Um, 
And eventually I talked, uh, Jason got a hold of me and said, would you be interested in producing uh, our new record? And I said, uh, absolutely. Okay, well, um, we, we um, in a previous episode, we talked about the recording of the um, Leave Here Stranger album that, that you produced. And um, um, Joey Squeebs um, told us how you pretty much were a producer and you would make decisions like at handy cut at hand claps here, the one take of drums and that's it, and all these different things that really, from what his description made it sound like, it took an album from being good to great. How did the discussion go about how much control you would have over the making of that album? Well, <clears throat> I don't really like the word control because I, I don't, I, you know, producers work uh, in different ways. Some, some producers are very controlling. Uh, you know, on the extreme, you might have producers that even will get rid of the band itself except for the lead singer and bring in his own guys that he's used to working with sort of like the wrecking crew did back in the day when they were doing tracks for the birds and you know uh all, all sorts of people um uh and then you know then there's a there are producers that are very very hands off and they just kind of babysit the whole um operation I, I always felt my job as a producer was, first of all, to really create an atmosphere of creativity and a freedom for the artist. I, I feel like I was just part of the, you know, I was part of the band or anything else, not a not a dictatorship or anything of that nature. And, and Jason had told me, whatever you want to do, let's do it. Well, I felt it was mutual. I, I, I wanted everyone to feel free that no idea would be shut down or, or you know, laughed off or, or whatever. But just I think my main job was just to get just to make sure that everybody was relaxed and confident. And um, and then everyone was free to participate in the in in the creation of the record. Now. Uh, Jason played me the songs and I had uh, certain ideas about them um, where I would, you know, say, well, we might change this or we might try this vocally or we might try this uh, guitar wise or whatever, whatever it may be. Um, and uh, I also brought in a keyboard guy on it, uh, Rob Watson. And uh, so um the songs, you know, the, the, the beauty of working with Jason, the songs were so beautifully conceived and so, um, you know, crafted so well. The material was so strong that I, that unlike certain other records that I've been involved with, I didn't have to come in and sort of almost rewrite everything or something. It was, it was, it was there and it was inspirational. The moment I heard it, I could, I could hear uh, certain things on it in my head and um, they gave me the freedom to to experiment as well so I just again just felt like I needed to really um, the other aspect I, I need to mention that another aspect of this was that with Jason I really met a kindred spirit someone that that I could be friends with even if we weren't doing music together we just clicked we connected as friends and uh, that really, I think that went a long way in, in, in building trust with all of us. And that's a, that's, a beautiful, that's a beautiful atmosphere to work in. 
Wow. Um, so, yeah, that sounds amazing. I guess, yeah, when you trust each other, it makes the decisions a lot easier. So were there any times where, like, you had an idea and Jason or somebody in the band didn't like it and there was, like, a back and forth? Or was it just, like, there was no disagreements or how did that happen? Yeah. Well, I was always, you know, I, I'm very thick-skinned guy. So if, if there, there were any times when I suggested something that the, the, the guys might have, pulled back from a little bit it wasn't anything for me to let that go and i think it was vice versa but i i don't think there was 99.9 percent of uh stuff that i suggested i think was implemented um i think there might have been a um <laughs> a keyboard part on one song that was a little bit jazzy for jason you know uh and we would good-naturedly argue about it a little bit, always good-naturedly. It was always fun and, and uh, uh, you know, just uh, honest and easy. So I think most of I, – I really respected where their original vision, Jason's original vision of each of these songs. But I knew there was some room for play and room for extra cre- creativity and, and suggestions. And so I, I – I really had, a, I think, a, a fairly light touch in that regard, being always respectful of uh, the band's sensibilities. Very nice. It's always nice when you get that collaborative thing going on. Um, I have read many a horror stories about producers coming in and not meshing with the band, so that's always good to hear. Um, now, I am curious. You mentioned you brought in a keyboard player, Rob Watson. Yeah. Now, when we were interviewing um, Joey Escabel, he mentioned he's like, "Yeah, Terry brought in this keyboard player, and he—I know he played for Disney, and I can't remember his name." And um, after we reviewed the, I'm like, "Yeah, I kind of hear some Disney style notes in there." So, just to kind of reveal this mystery for us a little bit, um, who was Rob Watson, and um, did he have a connection to Disney? I ha- I don't know anything about a connection to Disney. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> the plot thickens. <laughs> that's that's a very strange. That's very strange. I mean, it, it's possible that that uh, you know Rob does a lot of keyboard work. I maybe maybe there's something that I'm I'm not aware of. But no, Rob Rob uh, Rob really became a part of my band Daniel Amos with the Vox Shimana record. We brought Rob in uh, because we we're leaning heavily on keyboards with that record and Rob sort of has been in and out of Daniel Amos ever since. As a matter of fact, I'm working with Rob Watson right now on my solo record. So, uh, he's a, he's just an incredibly gifted guy. And he's, he's one of these guys that, uh, he and I are always, uh, seem to be on the same page. We, we hear the same things almost at the same time. So, uh, yeah, we, we brought Rob in, but whether he was a Disney guy or not, I know that, during the recording of the record, uh, Leave Here a Stranger, Rob not once put on a pair of Mickey Mouse ears. <laughs> you <swear>. oh. <laughs> Maybe some white gloves. Yeah, some big, some big oversized white gloves with buttons on them. Um. Well, the, hey, at least we have a one semi-mystery down. Maybe we'll get to interview him someday. Yeah, that'd be good. 
So I'm curious in the recording of the album, it sounds like you had a really good experience with all the band members. And from what you've heard from them, they had a really good experience with you. Do you have any fun memories, anything that sticks out to you from that process? Well, I think, I think overall, uh, um, my memory, you have to remember that this came after, uh, Gene Eugene's passing and, um, we all knew him very well and I knew him very intimately. And so there was in a way, a certain cloud of grief that hung over a little bit, but I, I, and I think in a way that bonded us even more closely. I remember that Jason would not say, um, would not say Gene Eugene. He would say the late great. That's, that was his, that was his uh, term for, for Gene, and I knew exactly who was talking about the late great. He goes, well, I wonder what the late great would think about this. And, and um, matter of fact, I used in a song called Flash in Your Eyes on uh, uh, Mr. Beekner's Dream, right? Daniel and Amos and my band did. I used Jason's reference to uh, the late great Gene Eugene in, in the lyrics of that song. Um, as far as a, a, I'll give you a little insight into the creative process. One memory that I had, we were all sitting out in what the what the green room called the tiki room, and it was a little the break room just outside of the, the main studio there, and uh, we were sitting there, and you know I'm I'm constantly even in even if I'm just carrying on a conversation or something, I'm constantly thinking about the record, and I'm constantly thinking. About, well, I wonder if we we should try this or try that, and I got this idea. So so while everybody was kind of chatting, I just got up and I went into the control room by myself, and I had this little Panasonic tape recorder that I used for years and years and years, just a little cassette tape recorder, portable, and I would you know I would uh, record little bits of music or lyrics or whatever, just as sort of references. And I took the Panasonic inside there and I put up um, all my friends who play guitar. I put the two-inch tape on, put up all my friends who play guitar. And I took my Panasonic and I recorded the intro of that song that we had already recorded, obviously. I recorded the intro of it. And then I mic'd my Panasonic and uh, I grabbed a, a an extra track on the All My Friends Who Play Guitar song, grabbed an extra track, and I recorded my Panasonic of the original intro onto, onto this track. And if you listen to the song, you'll hear it right at the very beginning. We, we all felt that uh, All My Friends would probably start the record. So if you listen to it closely, you'll hear me turning on my Panasonic, you'll hear the click, and you and the record starts off with this sort of noisy, tinny kind of sounding uh, intro. And I'm sure the listener, when they first hear it, think, wow, this doesn't sound that great. And then a few seconds in the song that we originally recorded comes in and it just opens up this beautiful landscape music. So it was just a little uh, little trick that I thought I'd try and see what the rest of the guys thought, and I played it for them, and they loved it. So we went with it. 
Well, I like most people love it too. It doesn't sound bad. It's kind of like I yeah, when I remember I was in Germany when I first heard this and you do obviously hear the click. I'm like, what is that? And it's like a it's like a I don't know, so nostalgic. It's like it's like it makes it sound like a song you've heard already, even though you haven't heard it already. You know oh, that's I mean? great. That's great. I'm glad you got that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we could talk about Leave Here Stranger Forever and but we won't do that too. So we'll move on to the next question. <laughs> Um, so for the Bon Voyage album, The Right Amount, you're accredited as the vocal production. What exactly does that mean, vocal production? And what did you do to okay, well, get that well, credit? After, well, after, um, after we had, we had done Leave Here a Stranger, um, Jason gave me a call and said, Hey, I'm doing this, uh, Bon Voyage album. And, uh, uh, my wife, Julie's sings lead vocals and he said i'd really like you to consider uh producing her vocals for this and um so he you know i i said he's sure i you know i I would love to do that and uh, i went over to his place and he was in his garage he had a recording studio in, in his garage and uh that was an interesting experience doing doing stuff in this garage because you know the car drove by in the parking lot you'd have to stop recording in the middle of it or you know one day we had a we had some kid that for some reason he chose that particular garage to to bounce a, a tennis ball off of the off of the garage door and we had to open up the garage and tell him you know to knock it off uh politely but uh, anyway so as far as my role in production of those vocals it was um, it was just to, um, you know, uh, sort of give her direction in terms of uh, her vocal uh, delivery. Um, sometimes we changed the melody up a little bit or experimented with it a little bit. Obviously, listening for, uh, you know, uh, flat and sharp notes, things like that. Um, nuances you know i would suggest you know you might be quieter in this section or whatever it was just a a lot of little um uh you know various little suggestions things like that and it it was a it was she was you know really talented and and so it went very smoothly and and she felt um you know uh uh safe there as far as my as far as my input and and we got to know each other and it was a it was a very delightful experience. Any any memories um, about particular songs or anything that stands out to you during that recording process for the Right Amount album? Well, I mean, gosh, that it's been such such a long time ago, and it was it it was a fairly brief um, uh, time that I that I spent in that in that situation. I uh, all I all I all I do remember is is the problem with outside sounds and that sort of thing but uh she was she was a delight to work with and a very very easy process beyond that i i i don't really i don't really remember any other specific memories about that okay well it's my favorite bon voyage album and leave here strange is my favorite starfire album so you seem well, to be the magic great, man i love that i love that bon voyage record i haven't heard that in years but it's yeah it's great you should go back and listen to it yeah Sam, I, go ahead I need, I need to do that that is really cool i am um, it is something we noticed when we were reviewing um 
both the star, both the uh, Leave Here a Stranger record and the Right Amount Bon Voyage record that um, previously Julie's vocals and definitely Jason's had usually been buried in the mix. And it was really cool to hear the vocals more brought to the forefront for both of them, but especially Julie, because she has such a lovely voice. Yes, she does. And with Jason, the interesting part, I don't know if you guys have ever talked about this on the show here, but with Jason, oh, I've never seen anybody in my life in the studio who had more dread of having to do vocals. It was it, it was really interesting, very reluctantly, you know. I would have to encourage him and, and the whole thing, and he, you know, he's just so, he's just so humble in that regard. But, uh, you know, it, 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 it was, uh, sometimes a little rough going and, uh, he, he's just, uh, at least at that point in time, he's a little self-conscious about his, his vocals. And I just had to encourage him and say, there's no reason to be, uh, you know, he's got, he's got a certain, there's a quality to his vocals, a certain almost melancholy and 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 a, a sort of sadness, a profoundness to it that um, that really struck a nerve with me and re, you know that, that I love, and so there, I felt no reason to bury it at all, but to bring it out a little bit more. Sam, before we go on, I just want I just a couple of things I want to unpack there. I think you're right. And I just like with Kurt Cobain, who also and Prince too, very reluctant to record vocals. And I think it's that melancholy and that holding back that when you finally unleash that really connects with people. And so that kind of makes oh, sense. Yeah. And, beautifully said, beautifully put. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And then the Julie, like, um, and I'm with you, like, I haven't listened to, I listened to the right amount, but I didn't really pay attention to the lyrics until, like, last week, and, like, the song All the Traps, like, really hit me, and, like, her vocals in that song, I don't know if what you did, if you didn't have anything, she just did her own, but the way she sings the chorus in that, like, really strikes a chord with me and, like, really gets to my soul, so, yeah, yeah, bringing the lyrics out was definitely the way to go there. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And you just have to build confidence in people that are that have a reluctance or self-conscious on, on some level and just build a confidence with them and, and, and be a cheerleader. And uh, you, you usually they'll usually surprise themselves and sort of go like, I didn't know I had it in me, but uh, it's there and you just have to hear it and uh, and and just help them to feel secure about it. For sure. Yeah. And um I mean, I'll, I'll say this one part about the vocals and move on, but even some of the vocals in Daniel Amos' old albums like Fearful Symmetry definitely remind me of uh, Starfire 59 vocals and the later albums after you produce them and stuff. Yeah. So it's really cool to see the connections there. Yeah. All right. Moving on a little bit. Um, there is a box set named When Everyone Wore Hats. Um, and in that box set, Jason actually had an opportunity to interview you. Um, was this before you guys recorded together or after? How did that kind of come about? I think uh, as far as memory serves me, and at my age, it doesn't always serve me, but um, <laughs> as far as I remember, I think it probably was during the uh, um, Bon Voyage uh, time that I, that I was over at Jason's place. And um, I don't know uh, exactly um, how it was decided that that uh, that we're not that we that I was going to do an interview of some sort. Um, I thought I think I thought it would be a good idea to do some sort of interview 
um, that we can use in that set. And there was Jason, and, and I thought, and I thought, hey, I, maybe I'll maybe I'll get him to do the interview. And uh, I I told him what I wanted to do, and um, I don't know how enthusiastic he was about it, um, but he said, sure, I'll do it, and that's how it came about. Simple as that. Well, that album um, um, that was um, when it was what was the album that box says when everybody wore hats. Songs of the Heart. Songs of the Heart was the original. Songs album. of the Heart. That's and, it. Yeah, and it has a very country twin um, tinge to it. And Jason later, well, throughout his career, but from this point on, you see that country music really influences him. So I wonder if that was a result of you hanging out with them a lot. <laughs> but uh, hard, hard, to, hard to say. Hard to say. Yeah. How does um, um, your faith influence how you create music? You mentioned it briefly earlier, but could you elaborate on that? Well, I, you know, I think everybody um, has a worldview. You see, you see the world through, uh, you know, your particular philosophy, maybe how you were raised, whatever it may be. Uh, you, you see the world, you know, you could be an agnostic and see the world one way. You can be an atheist, see the world way. You could be a person of faith and see it a certain way. So part of, part of you know, part of who I am is how I see the world. And so it, it's um, it, it's obviously that worldview is going to be reflected in some degree in my songwriting. Um, I think it's uh, I think it's important uh, to understand that because I'm what is a so-called what some people would, would call a quote unquote Christian songwriter, and I don't like those labels. I consider myself a songwriter. And I have a worldview like everybody else. And part of that is going to be, uh, obviously, is going to be very in influential as to how I approach songwriting. But at, at the same time, I'm not, I'm, it's not my attempt to evangelize uh, the listener every time I write a song or record a song. And part, part of the, the controversy with Daniel Amos is that as we began to sort of get out from underneath this restrictive idea in the church that a song that a, a song only a song only had validity if it had some pragmatic utilitarian use in terms of witnessing what what would be called witnessing for Christ and that you had to have certain key things in the song to be uh, for it to be a valid expression and once we started kind of breaking down those barriers within Christian music, and I think that the, I think that the beneficiaries of that struggle that we went through and all the flack that we took for it, uh, where we felt that a song uh, doesn't need, art itself doesn't need justification, um, that craftsmanship is a reflective of is reflective of the creator and if that's all you've got you've got enough you don't have to go beyond that and and think that you have to get in a message you know it was it was uh, c.s lewis who said uh, we don't need more christians writing christian books we need more christians writing good books and when he wrote the narnia chronicles he his his priority was to write a great fantasy. It wasn't to uh, evangelize his readers, although 
Aslan himself is a, is a Christ image in the story. His first priority was to write a good story. And that's my priority is to write a good song. And I think that that's an, that's that attests to to uh, who who the the creator is. And, the, and that's enough. OK, and and I totally feel that. And I'm going to try to make this as brief as possible. And yes, and that's why I appreciate your music about Daniel Amos, Leave Lost Dogs, everything else. Um, for example, Darn for a Big Bike, which is probably the best, I don't know, I call it theology rock. It's like an old John, his own genre. And Lee Bozeman does a lot of good of that too, theology rock. And so I don't think the word God comes up in that album at all, but it's a lesson in theology questioning, like, can we even, can we even worship God? Can, how audacious do we think that God can, that we are praising God in a way that's worthy, just, just basic stuff like that. And there are great songs with, there's definitely talking about God, but there are great songs at the core. And I think maybe you think, do you think that's what bonded you and Jason? Because Jason too, he has a way of writing. Some songs are super obtuse and who knows what he's talking about. But then there's some songs where he's talking about God, like um, Sled and Hazelwood, but there's not overtly Christian, you know, but if you pay attention and see what he's saying, it's such a good song and you feel it. You think maybe that was a bond y'all had? Yeah. You know, you know, I, I, I think, I think, I think my approach in, in, in songwriting is I like, I like to open it up to the listener. I like the listener to sort of, it's sort of a partnership in a way. I don't want to feed obvious overt things to the listener. I like the listener to be able to discover things for themselves. And I think that reaches a deeper level than merely uh, uh, sort of, you know, what, what is cons- what we considered, you know, a, the, a, the Christian evangelical message of some sort. Uh, one of the things that really uh, stayed with me was Daniel, Daniel Amos went over to Green, to Green to do the Greenbelt Festival in England. And uh, while we were there, we, we had a chance to go to Amsterdam. And uh, uh, in Amsterdam is the Rijksmuseum, which has a lot of the world's greatest paintings. And uh, a lot of Rembrandt's works are there. And uh, Rembrandt, of course, painted a lot of uh, religiously themed uh, uh, paintings. Um, and in, in one particular large room, um, there hangs a painting that Rembrandt did, uh, which is called the Watch or the Night Watch, and it's a it's merely a a painting of uh, some local village officials, and it has nothing to do with anything religious whatsoever. It's just this lar- rather large painting of these local village officials, and Rembrandt would do that. He would be commissioned to do that. And it was sort of like musicians who um, uh, can't uh, make a living from being a musician, so they do it part-time and then they flip burgers or whatever. This was Rembrandt, you know, flipping burgers. He would, he would be commissioned to do this and he could use the money. And so he'd paint, he, he would paint these things. So this thing hangs in that, that museum. Well, the story is told that the first man off the street who came into that building and saw this uh, magnificent painting on the wall fell down on his knees and began to worship God. There wasn't a thing about that painting that had anything to do with uh, anything religious at all. But through the 
through the 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 craftsmanship, the beauty of 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 Rembrandt's work, this man found the source, the inspiration for that work, and that in some ways is. I think a level that I hope to work on, and I think that Jason works on as well. I would wholeheartedly agree. Um, one of the things I, I love about Jason um, is that he dedicates all his albums to God. And if you ever ask him in interviews or anything, he's like, yeah, I'm totally a Christian, but he doesn't ever make a point to have to write about it. He simply writes about his life, which gives it a level of a sincerity I am feel is missing in a, a lot of music, Christian or secular. And, and yeah, that's and, my and, main and problem that, with, I'm sorry, go ahead. And in that way, it would be, you know, uh, some, some Christians would believe that uh, a piece of work uh, that a Christian does, unless it, unless it overtly references their Christian faith or says the name Jesus or whatever, it's not, it's useless. But as, as I'm trying to point out in the Rembrandt thing, Rembrandt didn't feel compelled to write Jesus loves you at the bottom of his painting. He let it stand for what it was. And, and I think, uh, I think that's, that's what we're trying to do as artists. There's no, there's no, we have no shame in the fact that we are Christians and that we follow Christ in our lives. But um, songwriting itself is a, uh, a vast creative landscape to explore and we shouldn't be inhibited by anything. We should just go for it. And, and I love that you brought up the Rembrandt thing, because to me, art at its core should make you think it should be, it should be a provocation. And that's my problem with a lot of you know, secular or Christian music, especially it's lazy. Praise God. He's awesome. Okay, great. We know that, but there's also pain. There's also, I mean, God's in everything. He's in laughter. He's in humor. He's in good food. He's in everything. So challenge yeah. it. And that's what I appreciate about you and Jason's work is you have to search. You have to, I mean, some of it's obvious, but a lot of it, you have to, you, when you do the work, it's like, it, like you said, it's more rewarding. Like, Oh, I get it now. I get that. Like that, that aha moment is so much better than, okay, Jesus loves me. Yes. I know. Okay, cool. Thanks. Yeah. That didn't challenge me in any way. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I would, and I would and I would say this. I, I would say this. It doesn't mean that if you're being overt, that you can't write a great song. There are many, many exactly. wonderful, great songs. So hymns, I, I even hymns. I, There's a lot of great hymns. And I and and, and I, I I don't write hymns, but I've written I've written a number of overt songs that uh, are per perfectly appropriate and that I that I stand by. So. You know, it's not like you throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I, I just think that Jason has created a wider palette for himself. That's what I, I, I strive to do. And, and, and especially, you know, in something like The Lost Dogs, where I'm doing narratives of storytelling, where I can become characters, where I, become, I can become not myself as somebody else and see, see the world through their eyes. So, there, you know, there are so many options available to us. We don't need to sort of uh, hang a ball chain around ourselves before we write and say, gee, I hope everybody thinks I'm still a Christian after they hear this song or something, you know. For sure. Well, um, it's very obvious. Uh, um, Jason had a lot of influence from Daniel Amos from your career. Now, I'm curious. Um, I don't know how tapped in you are still to the music world and such. But he has been a long-going artist himself now. How do you feel like he has influenced a music, rather on a local scene maybe you've seen or maybe other artists you've dealt with? 
Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm not certain to what degree I, uh, that his, his influence is being felt. I have no doubt it is being felt. I can't be specific about that, but I can talk about how influential he has been uh, with me as, as he, he joins a pantheon of, of, of various artists who uh, really have, uh, have spoken to me uh, in terms of the kinds of songs that, that I want to write. What I really admire about Jason is his, uh, his uh, ability to say uh, with, with few words what he, what, what he wants to say and, and to convey uh, pathos and humor and all sorts of things in a very sort of succinct, compact way. I'm sort of, I would, what you would call a wordy lyricist. Um, not always, but I, I use a lot of, I use a lot of lyrics and I, and I, and I think, I think Jason is one and probably has something to do with his vocal delivery, that sort of thing that he can repeat himself and, and you, you still go deeper with him. Um, uh, I, I, I remember the story of Jackson Brown calling uh calling up uh tom petty and saying how do you do it he goes i always have to use a bunch of words to say what i say but you managed to um bring bring out the emotion of the so and and say things so compactly and so succinctly how do you do it with fewer words i think i think jason has that ability the other high compliment that i can pay can pay to him is that maybe the highest compliment that a writer can pay another writer. And that is that every writer has in, in, in their uh, list of songs that, that they haven't written songs that they go, I wish I had written that song. I wish that I had written that song. And if I could only write my uh, God only knows or you know, Caroline, no, or my day in the life of, or what, whatever it may be. And I think when I hear uh, something like uh, all my friends who play guitar, um, I think, I wish I had written that song. That, that, that's just one example of what Jason does. Within that, the first, those lines, those, just those few lines, all my friends who play guitar, we know who we are. We never go far like all my friends who play guitar. Within the, that little grouping of words there, you have a sort of humor and you have a sort of, a sort of heartbreak about it, too, at the same time. The, and, and, and it's a, a message that resonates with, with a musician who thinks, yeah, I'm another guy who plays guitar. And I haven't gone that far. I mean, maybe relatively I, I have, but uh, we're all kind of in the same boat. We all share this thing together, this struggle together. And it's a beautiful thing. And I, and I envy that succinctness that, that Jason is able to bring to his craft. I, I think you hit the nail on the head while we're such Starfire fans too, because yeah, in his latest EP Miami, there's a song called This Recliner, and the um, yeah. there's just a line in there. Oh, you've heard it? Yeah. What do you Go think ahead. of that EP? I love it. Go ahead. Okay. Well, um, there's um, I just want to go where I'm not tired. 
It's just like, God, that line, like, it's just yeah. like, it's just that one line, like, it just hits me to my core. It's just like, one, I can write a book. one I, line, man. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's great. Well, mm. I lost you there for a minute. I'm sorry. Do you want to share any, any of your thoughts on that album? I uh, don't have anything off the top of my head. I, I would just say I would just say that uh, Jason again consistently uh, about a, about a week ago. My son and I. My son um, is um, you know he's a, he's forty years old now, but. Um, he, uh, we got out the Dial M uh, record uh, vinyl. We're playing it over and over again, and um, you know, it's for me. It's like hearing an old friend, but at the same time, it, it's hearing uh, this um, this uh, incredibly, incredibly gifted uh, musician that I wish more of the world could hear. Uh, that that's that's. Uh, and, and 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 everything he, he everything he does has a quality that uh, is better than uh, most most anything most anything. So uh, I, I just love the guy. I love him. Yeah. Okay. So um, you mentioned earlier that you were working on a new solo album. You want to tell us more about that, or and or anything else you're working on right now? Yeah, well, one thing I uh, I would mention uh, that I am on Patreon. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. P-A-T-R-E-O-N, Patreon. Yes, we are. Okay, good. It's an artist collective, and it's uh, uh, fan-supported. So I have a Patreon site. Um, You go on Patreon, go to Terry Scott Taylor, and you you, you can find the site. And uh, on Patreon, I do um, uh, brand-new songs and... uh, mostly uh, fully realized uh, demos of those songs. I also do some, uh, a lot of my old stuff reinterpreted. Um, I do a podcast on there. Um, I do uh, some book reviews, uh, a lot of different things. So you go on there and check it out and uh, initial, you can, you know, you can get, it's fairly cheap to become a member. Uh, You can pick various tiers that you want to, if you want to join those. And, and, uh, and so, it's a lot of fun and uh, I think uh, your listeners would enjoy it. Uh, right now I'm working on a solo record. I've been working on this thing for over a year now. Part of the reason for that is the Corona thing. Um, coronavirus um, kind of broke, broke out uh, not long after we had recorded the basic tracks for it here in the Pacific Northwest. So uh, that has, that has sort of, um, delayed uh, the progress of it but the other reason that it's uh, taking so long is that we're actually uh, doing 22 songs we we had such a wealth of material that uh, we had much more than that and it was hard even whittling it down to 22 songs but we felt we felt we make it made a bold move at some point and said should we do go ahead and do 22 songs like doing a double record and everyone agreed we should so it's um i'm 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 incredibly proud of it i think it's i i, I think it's really very creative i think it's going to be a, a a totally absorbing uh listener experience it's not you know a lot of music today is pretty much um, um 
single oriented, throw it away, you know, and go move on to the next thing. This is, this is, this is old school in the sense that I want people to really get immersed in the world that I'm trying to create. Uh, it's, I, I think that people are going to love it and that we've had, we have a lot of really great musicians on it and uh, it's a fully realized record. We have orchestra and horns and all sorts of things. It's very creative. So uh, I'm really proud of it. And, um, and hopefully uh, we're getting near the end right now of, of mixes and, and uh, getting the artwork together. And hopefully before too long, we'll get it out. That is super exciting. Um, well, Terry, we are super, super grateful and thankful that you've taken your time out to hang out with us and talk to us. It's been an absolute blast. Um, it's been beyond amazing. Well, it's really, really been an honor for me to be with you guys and, and Aaron. I'm still appreciate, appreciative, as I am of all the guys there, of, of um, your kindness to me and, and your support. And uh, it's very inspiring. And it was really, it was really uh, an honor to, to talk about Jason Starflyer, uh, truly one of my uh, favorite uh favorite bands and one of my uh, favorite people and musicians in, in all the world. So uh, thank you guys for the opportunity. Well, well, like I'll tell any of my, the three best songwriters ever, Terry Taylor, Jason Martin and Prince. That's my Mount Rushmore right there. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. I'm honored. Thank you. All right. All, all right. right. Well, good night, Terry. All good right. Night. We hope to maybe talk to you again in the future. Um, as uh, this may have inspired us to review some more Daniel Amos stuff, possibly. <laughs> but we thank you so much, and you have a wonderful night. All right. Good night. Too. Love you. Bye-bye. Right. Love Bye. you, too. Bye. Bye.